0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Barron. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Daniela Gabor to the podcast. Daniela is Associate Professor in Economics at the University of the West of England in Bristol. Her main interests are in macrofinance, monetary theory and central banking, but she has a special interest in the way international finance is being restructured to deliver on current environmental goals. Daniela is the author of a recent research paper on what she calls the Wall Street Consensus, the way in which global finance aims to escort and de-risk private capital investments in the Global South. Thank you very much, Daniela, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here virtually.
0: Yes. So uh, can you maybe just tell us a little bit about your background, Daniela, and the work you're doing at the moment?
1: Sure. Uh, So I am a a student of central banks. Uh, I I started by studying central banks. I did a, a doctoral thesis on the Central Bank of Romania, and um, that was quite a while ago, maybe t- 12 years ago. And since then, I've been thinking uh, more or less uh, constantly about what I would call a holy trinity, uh, which is uh, the relationship between the central bank, the fiscal authority, and private finance. And this comes uh, with this, uh, a specific angle, if you want, an angle that I call critical macrofinance. Uh, that uh, um, suggests, and it's a, an insight that goes as back as far as uh, Hyman Minsky, um, but also back to sort of earlier analysis, uh, it suggests that uh, in order to understand a monetary policy or macroprudential policy or the relationship between the central bank and the fiscal authority, you have to look very carefully at structural changes in private finance. You have to understand how private finance evolves what kind of activities uh, it uh, innovates, what kind of new institutions it produces in order to understand how uh, the state, through its monetary and fiscal arm, uh, respond to it. So that's sort of broadly the the narrative arc of my research, Um, this holy trinity. And for the past three to four years, I've been thinking about this uh, relationship in uh in uh questions or with respect to questions of about the climate crisis
0: yes absolutely and at the heart of the uh this clearly vast sums of money uh need to be mobilized and i'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you about that um uh, just before we start can you maybe tell us a l- little bit about um you know, we're facing many interlocking, interconnected environmental issues right now. What in particular is on your mind?
1: So I guess one of the things that I've been uh, wondering about um, is how do we, we achieve uh, the, 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 very, the famous net zero transition or the transition to a low carbon economy? There are various ways in which one can think about the amount of investment that is necessary in order to get there by 2050. I think 2030 probably is is very ambitious. But there are estimates that say we need investments of around 5 to 7 percent of GDP per year to 2050 to achieve net zero. And um, I've been thinking about broadly two ways of of getting there, and that um, and these two ways are very much in the public discourse right now. This, I would I guess, as as policy avenues, and one is to maximize private finance for the net zero transition. In other words, to try to reorient uh, the trillions that. Um, Um, in uh, in institutional uh, assets that uh, exist at the moment towards uh, low carbon investments, or on the other hand, to maximize public investment for the net zero transition, a form of green Keynesianism, uh, where the state uh, uses its uh, fiscal capacity, changes its relationship with the central bank in order to um, invest in uh, uh, low carbon activities, in a sense, a bit of what the Biden's Jobs Act is, is uh, aiming to do now, although there are debates about the the scale and the the overall uh, ambition of of that project.
0: Yeah, uh, you, you you mentioned. Uh figures of GDP and, and so forth, the 5 to 7%. I mean, according to some recent, uh, and there are various estimates, I guess, over the whole time frame. but uh, recent estimates I saw were talking about figures in the scale of $130 trillion um, to you know, cumulative energy investments to achieve full carbon neutrality. That's, I think, the arena global renewables outlook. but vast sums of money um and i i, I guess this is a, a a question which is really important you know how much is that money what's the best way to think about that those kind of sums of money and w- w- the sources of capital that we can uh bring to bear i mean you mentioned the the, the focus on private finance uh, it seems that there's been a, a change of uh, mood, uh, however long-lasting it'll be, uh, about you know government finance, what money governments can provide. We're always told there's no such thing as a money tree, and now we've got this modern monetary theory and so forth. So, I mean, if you just narrow it down and look at it in the, that, that sense you know vast these vast sums hundreds of you know 100 trillion dollars or whatever we're talking about what what are the, the the possible ways that one could finance that and and what would be uh it's a big question and we can go into more detail and specific elements of it but what what would be the i guess pros and cons of, of different aspects and i i know you've spent some time and i'm very interested in the private finance side of it because this does seem to be have, have tremendous momentum at the moment.
1: Thank you. Yes, uh, uh, I think the, the sort of dominant narrative uh, we have now, for example, in the COP26 that uh, will take place in um, Glasgow this year, uh, in the various international development policy circles, uh, the, the narrative is that uh, we have uh, worldwide around 380 trillion assets under management, uh, if we could redirect some of those uh, financial flows uh, away from fossil fuel investments and into uh, green investments, uh, we probably need a, a third of that, uh, as you said, around 100 uh, trillion. If we manage to do that, then uh, we would basically get enough financing for the low carbon transition. And that's a uh, 100 trillion, is an a, a eye watering. Uh, sum of money, of course. The question there is uh, very important, I guess, is uh, to what extent uh, can we or how can we ensure that uh, these uh, uh, new flows of capital go into proper green uh, investments or green activities? And what's been on my mind for a while has been the question of greenwashing, because there are many uh, investors nowadays who are trying to incorporate sustainability into their portfolios, but the ways in which they do that are at the moment uh, quite contestable or debatable. uh, And uh, we have to think very carefully about the ways in which we can avoid greenwashing. And for your audience in in private finance, uh, greenwashing means uh, trying to uh, make some assets or some some loans or some um, bonds that are that are issued in order to uh, direct credit towards uh, economic activity to make them look green when in fact they are they are not green. So the point is, um, it's important to yeah. avoid this greenwashing uh, because otherwise, what we get is um, investment not getting into the right places. Uh, while profits going into the uh, to the financial system without benefiting uh, the climate, or worse, uh, while making the climate crisis uh, uh, even uh, stronger or sharper.
0: Yes, maybe let's discuss private capital first, because this is, as you say, something you've been sp- spent some, a lot of time thinking about and profoundly. And you recently wrote a, a paper. I think about what you call the de-risking paradigm. I think you call it the Wall Street consensus. And here you you seem to be not only uh, looking at this question of greenwashing, but more also more fundamentally, the kind of terms in which this finance would be provided. And the kind of returns that would be expected, I guess, on risk adjusted return uh, levels, which is to say if the risk is reduced, then the returns are increased and so forth. So th- there, there, this, this logic that seems to be uh, unfolding in, in, in the World Bank and the IMF or the, you know, the, the international financial infrastructure, I guess, can you talk a little bit about what the direction of travel is there and what concerns you?
1: Uh, yes, uh, I, I guess since two thousand and fifteen, the direction of travel uh, has changed quite dramatically since the global financial crisis. If, I'm to, if I am to remind your uh, listeners, the uh, great financial crisis and two thousand in two thousand uh, and eight um, came with a very re- uh, new sort of push from uh, uh, national and global regulators to make sure that we uh, better regulate finance, that we reduce the uh, uh, systemic vulnerabilities, and we reduce the possibilities that financial instability will become uh, explosive, and uh, with it, uh, affect the lives and uh, livelihoods of, of regular citizens. So for a a period after 2008, uh, I I, I would argue up to 2015, uh, we had a a very strong regulatory push uh, in international um, uh, circles to uh, reduce uh, systemic vulnerabilities. However, since 2015, what we are seeing is a a change in the logic of, the relationship between the public sector and private finance in the sense of our, uh, 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 of a renewed sort of partnership with finance. And I think this um, uh, word, uh, it's a key word, the, the word of, of partnership, because it encodes a, a, a sort of political proposition that in order to deal with the climate crisis uh, or in order to uh, achieve the sustainable development goals uh, by 2030 in the Global South, what we need to do is uh, we need to escort to accompany private finance into um, climate investments or into uh, development investments. And to, to do this escorting to, to a company, to make sure that we reorient uh, private finance towards more sustainable uh, investments, The idea is uh, to uh, de-risk these investments. In other words, the the logic is uh, private finance doesn't go into certain uh, low uh, carbon activities or into uh, uh, sustainable development goals related activities because the uh, risk return profile is not adequate. There are too many risks for the the rewards that uh, can be um, generated. And uh, the, the development the risking paradigm says, well, we need to put some public resources into uh, making sure that we change the risk-reward profile. Uh, to give you an, an example, uh, in order to make sure uh, to make sure, for example, that there are, there are investments in renewable energy in the global south, in various sub-Saharan Africa countries. Uh, Multilateral development banks should take some of the risks away from these investments, should assume, for example, currency risk. Uh, In other words, they would compensate private investors if uh, local currencies depreciate to make sure that there are. Cash flows uh, that uh, that are consistent and and systematic that go to these private investors. So that's that's sort of a since two t- 2015 we see that logic of the risking uh, becoming increasingly prominent in the. Um, activities of the World Bank, increasingly in the activities of the International Monetary Fund, in multilateral development banks, and uh, quite recently in the work that the COP26 is doing in order to think about uh, how to accelerate the low-carbon transition. And what concerns me there in this um, uh, uh, de-risking as development paradigm is the extent to which public resources are necessary to de-risk capitalism, if you want, for private finance. So the starting point there is not to to think about how investment affect development outcomes, but to think about how to proof risk um, uh, local economies and, and local activities uh, for uh, private finance, and that can co- uh, be very consuming of, of fiscal resources, and can reduce the fiscal space that uh, countries have. And I know this term, and, and maybe we'll come back to it. I know this term is is quite controversial, and it's it's controversial for uh, very good reasons because we don't have a, uh, a very good way of approximating or of calculating what what fiscal space means, particularly because it it also pertains or it uh, relates to the relationship that the central bank and the fiscal authority have. But in general, uh, there are, uh, I would say, there are significant concerns about the fiscal costs of this uh, de-risking. If we want to make sure that BlackRock invests in, uh, a uh, the health systems in uh, the global South, in Mexico, for example, or if we want to make sure that BlackRock invests in infrastructure in Mexico, uh, then uh, the, the Mexican state, together with multilateral development banks, will have to put some res- resources on the line to uh, uh, guarantee returns for for BlackRock.
0: Right. At, at, I mean, I guess at, a, at, at the at a, the biggest level, as, as you said. We need vast sums of money. There are vast sums of money in the hands of private finance. Is this not a, an elegant solution?
1: I guess, yes. I mean, uh, it is a, a very politically appealing solution because it says, uh, uh, or it accepts the the, the narrative that um, uh, countries in general, and specifically since the COVID-19 pandemic has uh, hit the public purse, uh, we don't need that much of public money uh, in order to uh, finance the low-carbon transition. What we could do instead is to make sure that private finance um, uh, uh, does the job or the heavy lifting. And my uh, um, interest as a as an academic and as a critical thinker, uh, I guess, is what does it mean? How does this uh, heavy lifting work? And to what extent does it sort of... Uh, pass control over uh, the process of, of, uh, of um, um, uh, investment towards uh, private finance, and in a sense it guarantees returns for private finance. And here, uh, let me give you the example of um, uh, the debates around uh, taxonomies, so that's, that's the, a new important word in, in the climate finance uh, space. And it's the idea that we need to come up with a a metrics and ways of thinking and uh, differentiating between uh, green uh, assets and dirty assets. In other words, financial instruments that provide lending or provide capital to uh, low-carbon activities and financial uh, instruments that continue to uh, provide capital to uh, high-carbon or carbon-intensive activities. And what we know from looking at the political negotiations around these taxonomies is that Although, in theory, it would be good to have a a, a public taxonomy, it would be good for the public sector or the state to define what is green and what is dirty. Uh, The reality, the political reality, is that uh, it's private finance so far that has been allowed to provide these definitions, for example, in the form of the uh, ESG criteria, the environmental, social, and governance standards. And these ESG criteria, are very powerful in the sense that they create this image um, of private finance increasingly turning towards sustainable investments but when you look into uh, in, in detail at what at how this ESG criteria work, uh, the kind of ratings that come with it, because now you can assign an ESG rating to, say, a stock uh, or to a, a bond issued by uh, by a company. If we look into the details of how this ESG uh, uh, ratings are, are computed, what we see the, there is a, a lot of greenwashing. In other words, a lot of pretending that uh, some assets are greener than they are. And this is not just me that says this. This is uh, recognized by uh, the European Commission, who's been doing a lot of work trying to deal with that through the uh, sustainable finance taxonomy. Uh, The the, uh, private financial um, institutions also recognize the potential for greenwashing in, in the private uh, ESG space. For example, the the former the person who used to be in charge of ESG at BlackRock uh, and, and has left the job has fin- has uh, recently published a a, a uh, very I would say very impactful uh, piece arguing that um, ESG is a fad that allows for systemic greenwashing by private finance. So um, those are the kind of conversations that one needs to look at and and the kind of details and and, uh, uh, political economy dynamics that need to be taken into account if we are to think seriously about the ways in which we can uh, green our economies uh, and not greenwash our economies.
0: Yeah. Yeah big topic and, and, and very complex lots of lots of uh, uh, elements coming together there you you it's called i guess the wall street consent consensus uh uh echoing the washington consensus which was associated with uh, a particular set of economic ideas uh uh you know low inflation uh, deregulation privatization and and also associated with uh you know the the, 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 the uh, seen as the, the IMF and, and these organizations having the whip hand and and uh, c- countries in the global south having to sell off assets open up markets that kind of thing um, presumably and and from, the, from 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 your work that there's a marketization element to this story as well that if finance is coming in 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 in, in, in trillion dollar uh, you know uh, investment lumps, the, this will have presumably significant impact on the the organisation, the, the 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 economic and financial organisation of, of of countries in the global south and whole sectors.
1: Yes, thank you. So I I would say I mean I have um, termed this new sort of paradigm of working with private finance in order to achieve. Uh, either the sustainable development goals or in order to finance the low-carbon transition, I have termed this paradigm the Wall Street consensus because I think it echoes a lot and it has a lot of the political logics that were underpinning the Washington consensus. And we have to to recognize that the Washington consensus is is discredited as a a, a policy uh, paradigm because It proposed and it pushed uh, structural adjustment, not only in countries in the global south, but to a significant extent in in countries uh, in the global north as well. And what it said is what you need to do in order to uh, achieve uh, sustained economic growth in those times, we weren't thinking very much about uh, the climate crisis or we weren't integrating climate change significantly in our uh, uh, macroeconomic policy discussions. Uh, what, what it argued that one should do in order to achieve uh, sustainable economic uh, well, to achieve sustained economic growth is to have fiscal discipline, to have an independent central bank that targets inflation, to make sure that uh, uh, it's private financial markets that determine interest rates, not the state, to liberalize trade, to privatize state-owned companies. In in other words, to remove the state as much as possible from economic activity because uh, the argument was the presence of the state basically distorts price signals and by distorting uh, price signals, it it interferes with the optimal allocation of capital and it interferes with efficient markets. Now, we know that this paradigm has been uh, this logic of the uh, Washington consensus has been widely discredited because where it was applied, it didn't uh, generate a lot of sustained economic growth, uh, but instead it generated uh, significant uh, economic crisis. And we know that there are countries like China that uh, diverged significantly from the Washington consensus and achieved um, impressive rates of economic growth. Now we, we also know uh, at significant costs to, to uh, the climate agenda, but they achieve these impressive rates of economic growth by basically having the state orient or, or, dist, uh, or um, organize and to a significant extent, centrally plan uh, economic activity. Now, what this the Wall Street consensus does is to sort of reckon with some of the criticisms towards the, the Washington consensus and to say, yes, uh, it is important to bring back the state into our conversations about how to achieve um, sustainable development and how to, to, to achieve uh, uh, the net zero or the low carbon transition. But there is a particular view of the state and this particular view of the state is what interests me because it's not the state that one can think of uh, in a Green New Deal sort of logic where the state comes in and uh, undertakes massive public investments in uh, public infrastructure or massive public investments in green industrial policy. Instead, what the state does uh, is it de-risks the assets for private finance. And here, the logic of uh, commodification of public goods comes in because uh, uh, this uh, Wall Street consensus argues that it is simply um, unsustainable. There are not enough public resources to uh, uh, finance the infrastructure needs or to finance the SDG uh, goals. Uh, And uh, the best way to provide public goods like uh, education or health or um, uh, energy or transport is to attach a um, a user fee to it. In other words, you're no longer, in order to access public goods, you need to pay for them, right? And uh, uh, the idea is by paying, by, by introducing these user fees, Then you can issue bonds uh, to finance um, um, infrastructure investment or investment in general. And uh, you can sell these bonds to global institutional investors. In other words, you can tap private finance and uh, compensate institutional investors with these cash flows. So there is a commodification of public goods in there in the sense that uh, uh, the state has to work with private finance through what uh, are known as public-private partnerships uh, in these private-public partnerships, the state has a specific role, which is to de-risk um, uh, the activity of the private company that is constructing the school and it's putting user fees on the school, or is constructing the hospital and and charges user fees for access to the hospital. And where there are demand risks, in other words, where uh, if, for example, uh, the fees that are attached to health services are too high and they exclude a part of the population, we can and, and we. We know from the COVID-19 pandemic that this can be quite uh, um, uh, often the case and I think the example of India is, is quite striking And uh, uh, in that sense. Uh, where there are these uh, problems of demand, the state steps in and compensates the private uh, company Uh, and and makes up for the shortfall in demand, or it compensates the private company for uh, changes in currencies. In other words, what the state does in this Wall Street consensus is it it guarantees returns for uh, uh, the public private operators and it guarantees returns for those who finance these private operators, uh, in other words, for uh, global finance. And that to me is uh, concerning on on many levels because uh, it basically, Sort of walks backs, or it pushes against the, the idea that we can collectively organize through the state to provide for a set of of social services or of public goods uh, as we used to think. In other words, uh, we can no longer collectively organize to have a public pension system. We cannot collectively organize to have a public health system or public education. They all these. Um, Public goods now need to be uh, commodified or or uh, de facto privatized uh, in order to attract private finance.
0: It's a uh, quite quite a, 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 a terrifying vision <laughs> in in some respects, and and seems to echo some of what's. Uh, theorists like Wendy Brown, you know, see as the essential, I guess, uh, driving, uh, uh, well, structural way in which the government operates in 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 a neoliberal kind of context. Let's take a brief break to hear about an organization we support. Global Witness a pioneering, campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. And now we're back to today's episode. How far down the road are we with this kind of thinking? You mentioned private finance is involved in various ways. The uh, World Bank, there's this billions to trillions agenda, the maximizing finance for development, the infrastructure as an asset class from the G20, lots of multilateral organizations so um coming together probably quite difficult to to you know uh unpack you know where where, where who, who's really driving that or or, or where, where the power lies how, how far down the road are we and 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 what uh what needs to happen for it to become you know de facto uh operating procedures
1: so I would say that before the COVID-19 pandemic uh we were more uh at the level of uh, sort of great uh, uh, ambitions and intentions. It was uh, uh, a political narrative driven both by um, politicians in the global north, who don't want to undertake or are reluctant to either change their views about the uh, fiscal activism, right? Because if you if you don't if if you give away or or step back from the idea that uh, you have to rely on private finance in order to achieve uh, your social contract with your citizens then uh, you you need to accept that uh, you need a much uh, stronger and more active state that uh, must that uh, flexes its uh, fis- fiscal muscle in order to uh, deal with all the, the very complex challenges that uh, uh, we are facing uh, at the moment. So before, 2000, before 2020, before the global pandemic, this was a, a sort of uh, narrative that both fit uh, fit the, the, the ideological uh, context in which uh, countries in the global north found themselves um, where uh, fiscal activism was still not recognized uh, as, as a legitimate policy tool on on a, on a significant scale. I'm not saying that there weren't instances of fiscal activism here and there in response to the global financial crisis, but overall, we know from the work of Mark Blythe and others that austerity was viewed as the sort of uh, uh, first choice for uh, um, uh, governments faced with a crisis. Now, so that was a on the side of of the political um, representatives, but also in private finance there was this sense, uh, and and I guess this has something to do with the responses to the global financial crisis, that um, The presence of, of the increasingly large presence of, of central banks in all sorts of uh, uh, private financial markets through quantitative easing uh, meant that yields were falling, that returns were falling, and new sources of um, uh, profits were necessary, or new assets were necessary in order to generate and sustain profitability for for the private financial system. So the idea was, uh, well, maybe in these public-private partnerships may uh, will uh, be a new avenue uh, for uh, uh, sustaining profitability while resolving some of the political uh, dilemmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that countries in the global north uh, were facing and were, were uh, difficult to resolve uh, purely on a sort of uh, in a sort of political way with the politicians assuming uh, a, a much stronger role for fiscal policy. However, what we know, if we look into the details, uh, what we know is that this idea of de-risking uh, development or de-risking the low-carbon transition for private finance. Wasn't that successful in, in, in sort of hard numbers because um, 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 what pri- private financial institutions n- needed were uh, investable assets or investable projects. This required some significant scale, they typically required mega, mega infrastructure projects which take time to negotiate. They take a a lot of uh, legal capacity to negotiate as well. So in in a sense, the the ambition wasn't matched on the ground by uh, rapid progress. But uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has been seen as a sort of uh, trampoline to accelerate uh, uh, the political purchase uh, and the momentum behind this uh, maximizing finance for the uh, the low carbon transition and maximizing finance for development, uh, precisely because it comes, the pandemic comes with a significant pressure on fiscal resources, and uh, it offers a uh, um, politicians, uh, a very neat way out, right? So it, it is a, a sort of a neat way, neat way out of, uh, complex ideological, uh, contradictions. Uh, but, uh, so we will see, I'm, I'm expecting that, uh, things will accelerate, um, and, and, uh, there will be some, I, I, wouldn't call it progress in the sense that I have significant concerns about the fiscal costs of this, um, Wall Street consensus, I have significant concerns about the developmental impact of this Wall Street consensus. But what we know is that there is a, a political momentum behind it, uh, that you can see this political momentum in the various initiatives that you've described. You can see this political momentum in COP26. You can see this political momentum in the way in which the Biden administration has a, uh, announced its, uh, commit, its climate finance commitments for, for the Global South. And probably uh, you will see the same uh, uh, momentum supported by the negotiations uh, in the US uh, domestic politics, where we see that there are um, increasing pressures from uh, fiscal hawks to sort of um, pair back on uh, the. big state agenda that uh, the Biden administration seem to be pushing and to trust more uh, big finance and i guess if you want in some very crude way uh, this would be the dichotomy the, the dichotomy uh, choice that we have at the moment either you go big state and you regulate finance or you go big finance and you put the monetary and fiscal arm of the state uh, in the service of uh, supporting big finance to uh, Generate profits from uh, investing in low-carbon activities or uh, in activities associated with achieving the Sustainable Development Goals.
0: Wow, a, a lot, a lot at stake, um, and there's a lot, a lot more i 'd like to talk about the the private public partnerships and get a sense of those, but i 'm just wondering, going back to the, this you know the, the, the supply and demand question again a hundred trillion needed if we go in down that logic you know uh, the, the kind of sums we 're talking about, where else could we get the money? I mean clearly, we can come back to the kind of terms of trade as it were for, 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 for private finance. I'm just mindful of, of, of the question of uh, modern monetary theory, which <laughs> seems to be very, uh, a whole big topic, so maybe not go into that in, in a lot of detail. But generally, this sense, you know, the logic, we need the capital, we don't have the capital, and clearly COVID has driven this to, you know, uh, states do have, you know, uh, and, and central banks and the balance sheets, there are, you know, are really big issues there. But where else could we get the capital?
1: Thank you. I think that's that's a very important question, and it's 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 a it's a tricky question to answer both on on political and on macro financial terms. But uh, I would uh, direct, um, or I, I think about this question in in relationship to central banks and central banks' commitments to greening their activities. And uh, one has to recognize here uh, that central banks have been a sort of unlikely pioneers of um, the fight against uh, climate change, at least in in terms of um, uh, official state institutions. Because for a while now, uh, they've been arguing that uh, uh, the climate crisis is posing uh, important financial stability uh, risks. uh, And because uh, since 2008, 2008, uh, most central banks in the world uh, will accept that uh, financial stability is part of their mandate, then obviously they have to do something about uh, the climate crisis, right? And uh, there are uh, many things that central banks can do about climate crisis. Um, the, The sort of weaker version of what they can do and what has happened so far is to ask for financial institutions, private finance, to disclose their exposure to climate risks. And I'm saying this is a a weak version in the sense that uh, disclosure or making your uh, 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 risks transparent to the rest of uh, financial market participants or to the um, uh, general public is an important step, but uh, it's not ambitious enough given the scale of the uh, uh, climate crisis and given the urgent need to redirect uh, financial flows away from fossil fuel uh, activities towards uh, low carbon um, investments. So uh, the the stronger, and I guess this is where my answer would be: of how do how do you get the trillions um, that are necessary for the low carbon transition? The stronger version would be for central banks to accept that they are not these impartial observers of a, a, the way in which. Private financial institutions are both exposed to the climate crisis and contribute to it by lending to to high carbon activities. They are not um, uh, impartial observers in the sense that they have monetary policy instruments, either uh, conventional, and what we mean by conventional monetary policy, we mean interest rate, uh, uh, moving interest rates and unconventional, which is central banks buying bonds uh, directly from governments and from uh, private companies. In in these conventional and unconventional monetary policy measures, central banks can also directly subsidize um, uh, the carbon lending of private financial institutions. And to give you an example, um, this year we have published a report with uh, colleagues from academia, the uh, New Economics Foundation and Greenpeace, where we showed that it would be uh, easy for the ECB. It would be easy in, 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 um, in sort of policy terms. In political terms, it's far more complicated, but it would be easy for the ECB to stop subsidizing uh, uh carbon lending by not accepting the bonds issued by fossil fuel companies like oil companies not accepting these bonds as collateral when they lend to uh, uh uh to banks um, and uh, that would be to my mind a very important measure to change the relative cost of capital uh when central banks assume their role uh and their dire- the direct impact that that they play in the in the allocation of capital and to say, we need to green monetary policy and we need to green the financial system by basically making it more expensive for private finance to lend to fossil fuel activities and making it cheaper to lend to uh, green activities. And that requires, uh, admittedly, a, a lot of work. It requires the central banks to have a proper taxonomy, a proper way of, of measuring uh, the climate impact of uh, private lending. Uh, But it's not impossible. There are ways to do that. Uh, What we need to see there is political will. And that political will, I have to say, uh, is the bigger question, because even if you look at the European Central Bank, which under the Uh, Since Madame Lagarde took over, it has been much more vocal and uh, and much more publicly engaged with questions of the climate crisis. Even the European Central Bank seems to be walking back on some of its uh, commitments uh, to green its monetary policy operations, basically passing the hot potato of uh, the climate crisis to fiscal authorities.
0: I- yeah, but that bring, that brings up a, a, a question which I I am mindful of the time, uh, and it's it's uh, uh, you know a, a lot of interrelated questions here. But do do we need? I mean, because you said giving it back to the fiscal authorities, and 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 what you were talking about from a central bank perspective, I guess is largely a domestic uh, kind of initiative. Do we need, or, or is there a possibility for some kind of new multilateral climate finance infrastructure?
1: Um-
0: I mean. You know, I mean, with the Bretton Woods, the IMF, you know, creating new, you know, uh, financing tools, those kind of things. Are, are are those kind of ideas in discussion? Is, is that a silly idea? <laughs>
1: I mean, nothing is silly because I would say since I'm starting the climate uh, crisis and the way in which, um, uh, private finance contributes to it and is affected by it. I don't think that there are any silly ideas because we need to be as innovative and as c- brave as possible given the scale of, of, of the challenge. I guess once you accept that the climate crisis is irreversible and once you accept that there is what Mark Arney termed a, Minsky, a climate Minsky moment um, around the corner uh, that uh, will see financial institutions increasingly vulnerable to physical risks, to the risks of uh, extreme climate events, then all all possibilities should be contemplated, uh, bearing in mind the the political um, compromises that are necessary. Uh, But uh, so, uh, going back to your question of uh, a sort of uh, global infrastructure uh, for uh, climate finance, uh, it's important to bear in mind that central banks are organized in what is called the network for greening the financial system, the NGFS. And uh, the NGFS has been uh, has become increasingly large. Uh, almost every significant uh, uh, central bank or every large central bank is in there. They are doing great work. Uh, however, uh, I would say that that work is not ambitious enough in the sense that it's still focused too much on disclosure and not focused enough on regulating and penalizing dirty finance. And this is, to me, the the main message, if you want to take away, that um, we need some form of global agreements uh, on... um, greening uh, private finance simply because we live in financial globalisation and because we have not yet, uh, even uh, with the global financial crisis, we have not been able to generate a sort of political compromise that would put barriers uh, uh, in uh, uh, the movement of uh, private financial capital across borders. We are very successful at stopping People and workers moving across borders, but we have not been so successful at at, uh, stopping private capital moving across borders. Even if we know since 2008, it is increasingly accepted that some types of financial inflows can be hot in the sense of there there can be a lot of it coming in. Doing a lot of uh, uh, appreciating or creating a lot of bubbles in in uh, economies, and then living at the worst time possible, uh, and uh, yeah. Yeah. exacerbating yeah. those bubbles.
0: I'm wondering about something like which which I don't really fully understand the operations of the IMF, but you, you, these credits uh, w- which are provided and so forth. And is there an, an, an analogous kind of thinking to modern monetary theory where states don't seem to have the same limits? So people are looking very differently at you know the government's you know um, uh, balance sheets and 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 that you know this idea of deficits and so forth is seen in a very different way you know, would would some, I I hear what you're saying in terms of the central banks, but is something where there were, you know, some kind of credits, because this seems to be a question, doesn't it? Uh, uh, Underlying this, you know, if money is in short supply, why don't we just make some more money and why don't we do it? I mean, it seems to be a a bit of this logic around uh, however it's presented in terms of, you know, what's going on in America and what's going on post COVID. And it's been around for a while, but at a global level and very specifically dealing with, 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 with finance for climate.
1: Thank you. So I would say first that uh, it's not, I I would disagree with the statement that money is in short supply in the sense that we have around 380 trillion asset under management in the global financial system. And by by rough calculations, around 30 trillions of those 380 have some sort of sustainability label attached to it. Uh,
0: but they're all looking for really maximizing their financial returns, aren't they? They have a fiduciary responsibility to do that.
1: Very, very good. So this this is where I guess the, the not the invisible hand of the market, but the visible hand of the state has to come in. And if the visible hand of the state is prepared to say, well, it is up to us because private finance has indeed uh, a sort of. Uh, commitments to their shareholders uh, and um, to regulators that create all sorts of trade-offs that and uh, systems of incentives that don't allow them to transition as fast as we would like to towards a low-carbon uh, finance, then the state has to come in and say, well, it is up to, uh, to the state to regulate this. So it would be... Um, I mean not I I I think we need to talk about the political feasibility of this but yeah, the yeah. money is there. Uh, <laughs> the, yes. the, the... Because
0: someone like you know you, it comes back to these uh, uh contracts a little bit as well. Um you know and I know Mariana Masukato has done work on uh recently or, or for, for some uh, time now uh, on this question and, you know, looked at the, the the NASA project and, you know, this idea of no excess profits. And I often do ask people, is it OK for, you know, companies to, you know, make maximize their profits, uh, you know, from from activities related to, you know, climate change and so forth? And, uh, you know, that's that's that is a question, isn't it?
1: It is, and and where we are now, I guess I would I would argue, um, and, and uh, Maria Masuccato probably would agree with me that we are, at least in the conversations on climate finance, we still are in the mode of um, socializing risks and and um, privatizing uh, profits, and that that needs to change. Simply, if you believe in the urgency of the of the climate crisis, uh, it it needs to change. Uh, We just need the the political um, will for it. Now, the, the other question that I think is important to, the other issue that is important to bear in mind is that the climate crisis is not just an opportunity to make profits out of green investments for private finance. It is also a cost. And this is something that we don't discuss enough, I guess, the fact that it is uh, there are there will be some assets that will be stranded. In other words, there will be some loans to fossil fuel companies. There will be some bonds issued by fossil fuel companies that may become non-performing. And we need to think of ways in which um, uh, the state has will be able to or will think about uh, dealing with those costs uh, together with private finance. But uh, the conversation so far is how do we maximize their profits or how do we guarantee their profits and how not how do we deal with the cost that the climate crisis will create for for private finance and that takes me again back to the uh, question that you asked um, a few minutes ago which is about uh, modern money theory and the changing sort of wisdom around the relationship between uh, the monetary and fiscal arm of the state and i'm i'm not an mmter uh, although i'm i'm close uh, to them and i applaud the way in which they have uh, the MMT community has changed the conversation uh, around what central banks can do for uh, the the fiscal space. And I think it's important to bear in mind that for the last 40 years, the common wisdom that uh, central banks have been defending uh, because of the sort of institutional logic of, of independence, The common wisdom the central banks have been defending, and a lot of uh, fiscal authorities have been defending as well, is that we need to separate monetary policy from fiscal policy. We need monetary policy to be in the driving seat in order to provide macroeconomic stability. And we need the fiscal authority to stay out of the way as much as possible. Now, this common wisdom has been completely appended. And in great part, uh, that is also due, at least to the public pressure that MMT has uh, been able to generate, and 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 I applaud that public pressure. However, uh, um, I would argue that uh, we are not there yet in the sense that we do not have a new, and this is what we need. And I think this is where, um, uh, in, the, in a sense, heterodox economists, uh, to which the MMT community belongs, uh, broadly speaking, we we need to think of new ways of coordination between the monetary and the fiscal arm of the state. Uh, because, and you could think of it as a green form of coordination. In other words, the central bank has to be far more supportive of the green investment activities of the state, and that to me is a is a, a part of the solution of dealing with the climate crisis. That doesn't simply say, "Well, we will let private finance get on with it and keep our fingers crossed that uh, the outcomes will be positive." Instead, it is uh, recognizing that. Uh, you can't rely on private finance because there are uh, all sorts of conflictive incentive, conflictive incentives there, uh, and instead think about okay, what does uh, uh, what 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 kind of a fisc- green fiscal space do we need to generate, and to what extent can the central bank be uh, a sort of prime. Uh, uh guarantor of that fiscal space. And that's not something so un, uh, controversial now after a year of global pandemic macroeconomic policy, because we know over the last year central banks in high income countries have been buying more or less all of the debt issued by by government and have been keeping their borrowing costs under control. And that that I think needs to become a a central to conversations around climate finance and around low carbon transitions, the issue of better coordinating or returning to some form of overt coordination between monetary policy and fiscal policy.
0: Very, very interesting. It seems if you looking at what you're talking about there, the escorting capital and so forth, and, and, and that's uh, you know clearly one uh, huge uh, driving uh, force in, in, in the financial side of things. But at the same time, you've got this move towards uh, carbon markets, uh uh, big big momentum towards uh, natural capital and valuing na- natural capital, nature-based solutions. There is a lot of, I guess what you call, financialization of nature coming together. And if you put the whole, these different elements together, it's, it's, it seems like quite a profound change.
1: Yes, I would, I mean, there is a profound change and, profound, uh, and significant political uh, momentum, as I said, behind the idea that in order to deal with a climate crisis, we need to put a price on nature. Uh, my worry there, again, is about the ways in which, uh, for example, nature-based solutions uh, mean uh, translate into uh, a cover for a uh, greenwashing for fossil fuel companies and I was reading uh, recently an, uh, an interesting and well i maybe interesting is not the right word maybe outrageous um, example of uh, the oil company yeah. Total in Congo
0: yes yeah
1: yeah uh, where uh, shall I shall I continue oh, yes, please do. yes so the 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 French Total wants to exploit uh, oil in Congo. Of course, that creates more emissions. It doesn't look good for their ESG ratings. It doesn't look good for their commitments to to, to try to transition into sort of uh, lower carbon activities. Uh, So what Total does is is creates a nature-based solution unit, which will invest in what are called natural carbon sinks, right? That will sequester CO2 uh, from its operations. And if you look into the details of what this natural carbon sink uh, means uh, on the ground in Congo, you see that Total has entered the public-private partnership with the Congolese uh, government, uh, whereby uh, a, an area of around 70,000 hectares uh, will be will basically be transformed into a natural carbon sink by destroying the local savanna and replacing it with a timber plantation that will uh, will uh, also allow for the commercialization of timber. So to me, uh, this is in a sense paradigmatic. Of the way in which uh, the uh, uh, nature based solutions and the entire pricing of nature agenda can provide or can become a Trojan horse for uh, greenwashing, in the sense that it allows fossil fuel companies to continue to uh, extract fossil fuels from the ground and at the same time destroy natural, local, uh, 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 natural ecosystems and replace them with. sort of uh, other types of uh, forests that are much more suitable for com- commercial use, but they don't generate the same kind of uh, positive climate dynamics that we would be expecting.
0: How far are we on this journey? COP26 is coming, carbon markets is a key priority as part of that. Um, could this all be a done deal in the next 6 to 12 months? <laughs> uh,
1: at the moment, uh, I have to say I'm, I am quite pessimist that... Um, that the kind of critiques that I am making and that lots of climate activists are making, uh, these kind of critiques will cut through to the COP26 if I read the private finance uh, stream where Mark Carney, the former head of the, uh, the former governor governor of the Bank of England, um, uh, he's leading it. If I read those uh, documents, it seems that it is a done deal um, and it seems that we are going down the green financialization route, instead of going down the route of uh, greening the financial system through a set of uh, regulatory measures and through greening uh, monetary policy. And what this does to me, it puts all the onus on uh, the fiscal authority to increase carbon prices. So now we are at the the stage, I guess, where the solution to to our uh, uh, carbon emissions and how do we get to net zero uh, is to say, well, you know, um, we will just have to have high-income countries basically increase the price of carbon. Uh, and there are some good news there, but I guess uh, it depends on uh, on your uh, views of what is the timeline that is acceptable. Um, there have been uh, news um, that the price of carbon in the European Union has increased recently to almost 50 uh, uh, euros per, CO, per ton of CO2. However, uh, if you look at the estimates, I've seen some estimates done by um, the German Ministry of Finance. And the estimate is that we would need that uh, uh, price of carbon to go to to 680 uh, euros a ton if uh, we, we are guided by the principle of intergenerational equity. If we don't want to leave the burden of the uh, climate uh, adjustment to further uh, to future generations, we need the price of carbon to to be six eighty uh, euros per uh, per ton, and we are at fifty, right? So we are not even at ten percent of that price, and there is a lot of of political opposition already generated. So I'm 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 quite skeptical about the the possibility of a political agreement on significant prices uh, price increases. Uh, uh, um, for carbon Um, and I am uh, more optimistic about trying to both work on the fiscal front and make sure that uh, it is more expensive, it becomes more expensive to pollute uh, while at the same time working on the monetary front and on the private finance front, bearing in mind that uh, we live in uh, in capitalism and credit uh, creation and lending is fundamental to uh, economic activity and we need to green Lending as well, uh, or we need to green private finance as well, uh, uh, instead of relying on um, uh, simply on carbon taxes.
0: Yeah. Very, very interesting. And maybe just finally coming back to this question, pres- presumably, what, what do central banks think of these different initiatives, nature-based solutions, natural capital? Presumably, they like, you know, putting a value on things. They like balance sheets. They like all that kind of thing. Presumably, they're, they're, they're quite happy to see this, are they? Or, or, or do they have other concerns?
1: I think central banks are very interesting actors. I mean, I would say this because I've been studying central banks my entire academic life. They are very interesting because their their uh, political um, priorities and, and the political conflicts that they um, face are somewhat different, right? I mean, they are technocratic authorities with a mandate to provide price stability and with a mandate to provide financial stability. And the idea that we subsidize private finance for the purposes of greenwashing, or or with the outcome of greenwashing, goes completely against uh, the the logic of. Uh, Uh, ensuring or preserving financial stability. Because let's be clear, the more greenwashing there is in private finance, the more uh, potential for a a climate Minsky moment when you have these climate related risks basically exploding into instability. So so I have heard central banks, um, sort of both uh, privately and in public uh, spaces, expressing concerns about the idea that we have to subsidize green but we do not penalize dirty finance. Now, the problem with penalizing dirty finance is that uh, the moment the central bank says, I I think I should penalize dirty finance, I think I should green my monetary policy operations and penalize dirty finance, uh, that that immediately is interpreted as an uh, interference in the um, uh, market processes as renouncing the principle of market neutrality that many central banks view as a building block of their um, existence and operations as independent central banks. Um, And I have to make a bracket here and and say that the European Central Bank and the Bank of England both have recognized that that their commitment to market neutrality in practice means subsidizing um, carbon lending. even if they recognize this, there is a reluctance to penalize dirty finance because it sounds like industrial policy. And until we are able to accept, or central banks have managed to resolve this compromise, and politicians uh, uh, are there to pressure them into um, sort of reducing the way in their their own carbon footprint or the impact that their monetary policy operations generate. Uh, on um, uh, on uh, the uh, carbon emissions. Uh, until then uh, they will, I'm, I'm suspecting they will hide behind independence in order to do as little uh, as possible while also showing that they care about financial stability. So there is a role there for civil society organizations like Greenpeace and I'm happy to see Greenpeace in that space but there are many others that are trying to hold central banks to account for their, um, uh, the, the impact of their monetary policy operations and for uh, taking seriously uh, the um, uh, way in which uh, they regulate um, private finance both directly and indirectly through um, uh, monetary policy.
0: Wow! Wow! Uh, fascinating. Uh, whole whole other uh, series of podcasts there. Penalizing dirty finance, the the, the nomenclature, the green and the brown. Of uh, fascinating. Thank you so much for your time and today. And I wish you all the best with your ongoing work. And uh, yeah, thank you very much, Daniela.
1: Many thanks to you.
0: If you like what you heard today on the sustainability agenda, we think you'll enjoy Aaron Stibbe's book. Ecolinguistics, Language, Ecology and the Stories We Live By, which has recently been published in a second edition. This groundbreaking book reveals the stories that underpin unequal and unsustainable societies and searches for inspirational forms of language that can help rebuild a kinder, more ecological world. It's supported by a free online course called The Stories We Live By. Just type the name into Google and you can find it. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.